All right, welcome back. This is the capsule for essentially the Wednesday of the first week, um, going over the case of R v cap. You'll see there's two cases um, that we look at over both this Wednesday and the Monday for next week. So this capsule is going to cover the first case, and then the second one is going to cover the second case. So first of all, where are we? with um, that case. So you'll recall my introduction from this Monday, um, which hopefully uh, you watched very recently, where I essentially laid out most of the principles that you'll find in that case. First, essentially this is a case about section 15.2 of the charter. So you'll recall, right, that section 15 is our main focus for this course, and it has two subsections. First subsection essentially says the government, right, as we said, the charter only applies generally to relationships between people and the government, right? So the government cannot discriminate against you, right, which is also an equality provision based upon a bunch of things that are listed in subsection 15.1. You'll recall as well that I said the list is not exhaustive. And therefore, it's not what we call a limitative list, list, and therefore courts can and have added what we call analogous grounds. So they've added grounds that are similar and based upon which you can also discriminate. Then you have section 15.2, which says, in some circumstances, discrimination is okay. In some circumstances, even though we find that the government's discriminated against you or your group, it's allowed because Section 15.2 says that the protection of equality should not be read as preventing the government from enacting what we call ameliorative programs. So Section 15 could be read as, right, formal equality. People should be treated the same. Section 15.2 says no, we focus on substantive equality, and as a result of that, when the government enacts programs that further equality, right, that address people who are already disadvantaged, again, based upon what the list of things or analogous grounds, then it's allowed under Section 15.2. The case of RV caps essentially about Section 2. It's a case where the court sets out the principles that are applicable under Section 15.1 to a lesser extent, and then in greater detail under Section 15.2, sets out the test under Section 15.2 for the very first time, 2008, and right, also sets out a very important principle, and that is that Section 15.2 right, applies independently. So, what does that mean? Well, essentially what I said, Section 15.2 can come in after a law has been found to be discriminatory. So in other words, right, a law that would infringe upon section, subsection 15.1. Well, then subsection 15.2 operates independently. So it doesn't help us understand whether there's discrimination or not. Instead, right, it can come in afterwards and save the law and say, even though there's discrimination, it's allowed because there's good reason for it. So what happens in the cap case, 
Well, you have an Aboriginal group that gets a communal license. It's often an issue with Aboriginal groups, right? There isn't a, a conception in the same way as there is in the mainstream legal system of people owning things, right? People having a license or a piece of land. Generally, people own things communally. So a group gets a communal fishing license, which is exclusive for a certain period of time. So therefore, right, they can come in, do the fishing exclusively before the other people who have licenses can come in. Then you have a bunch of white people who come in and say, well, this is discriminatory, right? Based upon race, you're giving Aboriginal groups extra rights that we don't have, that is to fish on their own for a period at the beginning of it. And what happens, right, in the first instance? So how does the case get to the Supreme Court? Well, first you go to what we call the Superior Court, because the Constitution says if you don't know where to go, you go to the Superior Court. You go to Superior Court, right? Then they go to the British Columbia Court of Appeal in that case, right? There's one in every province, Constitutional Court of Appeal, above the Superior Court, which is also constitutional. And then, if you're not happy, you can go to the Supreme Court, but you have to ask for permission. It's what we call leave. So the Supreme Court has to grant leave for you to appeal to the Supreme Court. That's what happened there. And so they go to British Columbia Court, right? Then trial judge says, well, it is an infringement of Section 15.1. So basically, so white people aren't being treated equally, and it's not saved under Section 1. You'll recall I mentioned on Monday, quite briefly, that Section 1 can save an infringement of various rights under the Charter. So Section 1 is an additional limit upon various rights, whereby the government can say, yes, we do infringe upon constitutional rights, but it's appropriate, essentially because the law has a legitimate purpose and the government is achieving that purpose in a proportional way. Gives you the example of people going to jail, right? People going to jail, obviously, infringes upon a lot of their constitutional rights, life, liberty, but the government's allowed to do that for various reasons. So what happens in the Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court says essentially, right, that whatever discrimination there is, and there obviously is because this Aboriginal group is being treated differently, first part, which I mentioned last week, which we'll get at again uh, later on, on the basis of an enumerated or analogous ground, a thing in the list that perpetuates, right, or, or that's based upon existing disadvantage. But then the Supreme Court says it's saved under Section 2. And so because the granting of the license in that case, right, which is an act of a public body, granting a license is still government action, so it's within the ambit of the charter, right, still the government doing something or failing to do something, well, that is an ameliorative program, government program, or action, per Section 15.2 of the Charter. And therefore, right, it's meant to help a historically disadvantaged group, in that case, or Aboriginal group, and therefore, whatever discrimination exists is allowable.
And the court confirms, right, that that's the very purpose, as we'll see, of Section 15.2. Section 15.2 does just that, right? It's meant to allow the government to enact programs that combat inequality that might otherwise be considered discriminatory. The court says, right, basically that is a safe bet, right, for the government to take. Otherwise, the government has to go through what a court calls, quote, full scrutiny under Section 15.1, which prevents, essentially, discrimination in most cases. So the court sets out, as I said, that Section 15.2 is independent, therefore that it can come in and save a program that's otherwise discriminatory. And so it's not something that helps us understand whether there's discrimination. Instead, it's something that it can save discrimination even after it has been shown. The court also sets out a very rudimentary test, right, 2008 again, which remains the law in Canada. So what is the test, right? First, the program has to have, and that's um, something we discussed quite a bit on Monday, is to have an ameliorative purpose. And second, right, has to be, get the language there, targeting a group of people, right, based upon um, the various analogous grounds that we discussed. So first, an ameliorative purpose. What does that mean? Well, as we said on Monday, it does not mean that the government has to actually have a law that works. And so the government passes a law to alleviate existing economic inequality of indigenous peoples. Well, the government has to show that that is its purpose, that the law was passed for that reason. And you'll recall I said there's a pretty low bar that says it kind of also has to be logical. So the government can't, can't just say that absent any evidence. It has to make sense, right? It's basically the test. But that's it. It doesn't have to be true. And therefore, the government doesn't have to show that in actuality, the law does benefit um, or does alleviate, in that case, economic inequality for Aboriginal peoples. And you'll recall that I said that, that might make sense, right? Um, because the government oftentimes, when it's asked to defend the law, often shortly after it's been passed, it's just not in a position to have evidence that it works, even though that might later on prove to be true because it's just too early. So another thing that you're told is that it doesn't have to be, and we'll mention that again, its sole purpose. And so you can have a law or a program that has more than one purpose. That's allowed, as long as the relevant purpose meets the test, um, the various criteria under the test. And in that case, Supreme Court, and then just going through a quick summary, then we'll go through the case in more detail. Supreme Court says, right, in applying that test, you'll see lots of the cases dedicated to coming up with the principles under Section 15.2, right? Generally, this is what the Supreme Court does. They're not really concerned with fishing licenses. They're more concerned with making the law, defining the law. 
right? Most of the cases about that, and then you have the application. The application is basically, yes, the government was trying to have the license to benefit an economically disadvantaged group. It made sense, right? They get some fish, they sell them, they make money, and that alleviates their economic disadvantage, and therefore, right, it is rationally related. So you'll recall I mentioned that's also mentioned in section one of the charter. How do we test whether the purpose, right, makes sense? Has to be rationally related. So whatever you're doing with the law has to be rationally related to the purpose. Recall, which I mentioned a couple minutes ago, it has to make sense. It's basically what it means, right? Whatever you're doing with the law, right? So in that case, granting a fishing license, well, it has to be rationally related to what you're trying to do, and that is to alleviate inequality, right? And in that case, it is, it has to make sense. There's a relationship between the two. And the court confirms as well, right, that there is indeed an economic disadvantage here. This is the second part of the test has to target a group of people who are disadvantaged. Section 15, subsection 15.2, like subsection 15.1 has a list of things you can discriminate upon. But you'll recall that I said that that list is not exhaustive, right? There's other things that can be added there, and in fact, courts since the Constitution was passed in 1982, have indeed found some grounds that are analogous. You'll recall also that I said on Monday that once a ground has been found to be analogous, you don't have to prove it again. So the first person comes to court and says, right, marital status is a ground that should be recognized. Well, then the second person that comes in doesn't have to prove marital status again, right? By virtue of the case law, it is one of the grounds in the same way as if it had been written down as part of section 15.2, subsection 15.2. Therefore, as I mentioned on Monday, you cannot right, have a program that's meant to alleviate the economic disadvantage of Caucasian people because you have to target a group that is listed there that has historically been marginalized. And so it's not just a program that benefits anybody or any group of people, it's a group of people that meets these criteria. In that case, right, the Aboriginal group, right, lots of reasons that we generally know about, is found to be economically disadvantaged historically. And you have this very long dissent not particularly relevant, still pretty interesting, um, such that I signed it from Justice Bastarache, right? So this is a pretty, pretty, um, a, a pretty unanimous court. So you have one dissenting judge, one or two, and then the rest of the judges write um, together, and therefore it sends a message that they agree on this, right? You have one judge write a very long dissent on section 25 of the charter, which is essentially about indigenous rights. And he says, well, we shouldn't make the decision under section 15, which is equality rights. We should make the decision under section 25, and then gives you a lot of detail on that. 
and, and there's also some interesting issues, again, not that relevant for our purposes, about how making the analysis according to Justice Vestarache under Section 25, or failing to do that instead of Section 15, right, helps either right, um, affirm the sovereignty of Aboriginal peoples or do the opposite. And in both cases, though, the law is invalidated by the relevant um, provision. So now we'll go down um, in, the, in the case itself. That was a, a brief summary. Of course, when you're writing your papers or an exam, uh, where appropriate, you should never cite to the handnote, um, even though it's very useful. It's not actually part of the case, so you'll want to cite an actual paragraph number and the handnote. Um, or the summary uh, doesn't have paragraph numbers, and that's why you shouldn't cite it. As I mentioned, right here we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight judges. So just as Bastarash is the only one dissenting, right, if eight judges who all agree, it sends a message. As you probably know, it's not that common for our Supreme Court to agree on things in that way. And these are things that you should generally attend to when you're reading a judicial opinion, right? Not just the content of it, but where it was decided, right? Came from British Columbia. Well, what does that mean, right? Are the judges unanimous? What's the year? How does it seem to change the law? These are things that are just as relevant as the substance of the case. First paragraphs one through four court says, what I've said earlier, it's independent. It's a possibility the court says was left open under existing case law. So prior case law said, we won't decide yet whether section, subsection 15.2 is independent, right? Might be, might not be. We'll just leave that for later so we have the option to make that decision if it's convenient for us to do that later on. Well, now's the convenient time. Court says, yes, subsection 15.2 is an independent provision, not an interpretive aid. So independently can save a law is not just used to understand whether or not there's discrimination under subsection 15.1. And quite interestingly, not that important for our purposes, the reason the Aboriginal group is there, paragraph 5, is because a right hasn't been recognized. And so through section 35, of the Constitution Act, not the Charter, that says various rights of Aboriginal peoples are hereby recognized. And so they're not created by the 1982 Constitution. They are simply recognized. And so they have to be pre-existing. And of course, a convenient aspect is they're being constitu constitu constitutionalized, right? As a result of that, recognition, they gain the same status as a constitution and can be used to invalidate other things. Well, in that case, the right to fish was not recognized as an Aboriginal right. Otherwise, a question wouldn't have been posed as to, right, whether the government was allowed to do it. In fact, if it were recognized, the government would have had to issue a fishing license because the group had a pre-existing sovereign right to fish.
So, a bit of detail, paragraph 9, on what happened, right? Because you have to have people who are personally affected by this to go to court. Obviously, the Aboriginal group that gets this license is not going to want to go to court or have any incentive to do that. What happens, right? A bunch of white people have a protest, right? Essentially fish when they shouldn't during these, um, these um, exclusive times of the Aboriginal group. Then they get caught. It's penal provision. And basically, they either get a fine or go to jail and then try to have that invalidated. And so they'll say, right, the fine or the punishment that we got is not valid because we got it by virtue of a statute, right, that granted the Aboriginal group exclusive right. That's not valid because it's discriminatory against us based on our race. And you have some broad principles that are interesting around um, paragraphs 14 and following, right? Even though this is a 15-2 case, you've got lots of background on section 15. That's also why I assigned the case. 14 and following, lots of things I mentioned on Monday, right? It's based upon substantive equality. So the purpose of the recognition in section 15 is not to affect formal equality, for people to be treated the same, instead substantive equality, for people to be treated effectively the same. So in taking into account their specific context and circumstances, as well as historical disadvantage, such that in effect they have the same access to various things. It's confirmed by the court, paragraphs 14 and following. The court even says, quite interestingly, paragraph 15, that right, formal equality, right, treating people the same, can in fact produce inequality. And then you have the statement, paragraph 16, that I also mentioned on Monday, that the two sections, of course, help achieve that purpose of substantive equality. 15.1, right, is applied with these principles. So in assessing whether there's discrimination or inequality section, right, under subsection 15.1, we look at substantive equality, not formal equality. And second, under section, subsection 15.2, well, the government can save a law that is otherwise discriminatory if it helps alleviate the historical disadvantage of disadvantaged groups on the enumerated or analogous grounds. And therefore, they both are underlain by this substantive equality paradigm. Then paragraph 17, you have, right, um, even though this is a 15-2 case, the test that I mentioned last week under, sec under subsection 15-1 of the charters. So you got two important tests there, not particularly com complicated, admittedly, right? So first, it has to and this has been kind of reformulated, but right, it has to either perpetuate, and again, we'll reformulate it later on in other cases, perpetuate, right, 
some prejudice or disadvantage of the group, again, right, based upon not anything, either an enumerated, so one of the things mentioned in 15.1 and 15.2, it's the same list, or it's enumerated, or analogous ground, something similar, including things that have been recognized by courts to be similar, such as, as we said on Monday, marital status. And second, right, stereotyping. So these are, these are principles, right, set by the court in assessing what constitutes discrimination in the first place. Eventually, as we'll see, these are subsumed as interpretive aids. So they're not things that you necessarily have to show, right? They're similar, might, it, might even be the same thing that help you assess whether there's discrimination or not. They are not right, independent, um, mutually necessary steps. And then you have this test, uh, paragraph 19 from the law case, looked at it on Monday. We won't repeat it again, right, from the law case where the court says there's four things you can look at in assessing discrimination. Pre-existing disadvantage, kind of makes sense, right? Um, the, the correspondence between the treatments of what the law is trying to do and the disadvantage. Third, whether it has an ameliorative purpose. That's where it gets confusing, because as I said, now that is 15.2. So it's a mistake to say that that's assessing discrimination under 15.1. No longer is true. Four, right, the nature of the interest affected. And so you'll recall, gave you the example of someone who gets their pension cut because they're not married, because the regime says only married spouses get surviving benefits, right? Well, in that case, cutting the person's pension is an interest, right, that's being affected, and it's obviously significant interest because the person doesn't get any money for the rest of their lives. As we said, though, these four factors are, right, essentially number three no longer exists because it's 15-2. The four factors are interpretive aids. And so the reason I mentioned then is for you to note down that they are not cumulative necessary factors. They're, they're just indicative. They're stuff that you can use in assessing whether there is a violation, whether there is discrimination. They're not all necessary. They're not either or necessary. They're simply things, among others, that you can use in assessing, and lots of them are quite commonsensical, right? There's things that you might have associated with the definition of discrimination or inequality in the first place. Then you have paragraph 25. Essentially what I said, section 15.1 is about preventing the government, right? So preventing the government from doing discriminatory stuff, passing discriminatory laws. Section 15.2 is about enabling the government to what? To pass discriminatory laws that do good things, essentially that reduce inequality, existing inequality. 
Paragraph 35 to 37 is what I said about Section 35 being independent, not an interpretive aid. That's just a paragraph reference for you. Forty is where the court says it's independent. So as I said, it can be used to save a law. And if you don't meet, if the government, which has a burden, right, under 15.2, has to show that their law, in fact, is discriminatory for good reason. Doesn't, if the government doesn't mean that, the law has to go through the court calls, quote, as I said, full scrutiny under subsection 15.1. It's paragraph 40 of the decision. Paragraph 41 is where the court sets out the test, essentially ameliorative or remediatory purpose based on an enumerated or analogous ground. Then paragraphs 43 and following is where the court sets out what I said on the effect of the law. And so the law does not have to right, actually achieve its purpose. It just has to make sense. There has to be a rational connection between what the government wants to do, the intent, and what the law right, does to achieve that purpose or intent. It's, um, as I said, paragraphs 43 and following. That's where the court confirms as well, right, a concern by people who wrote, wrote articles prior to the decision that the government could just say, we're trying to combat inequality and that would suffice under 15.2 um, for the reasons I mentioned, right, doesn't meet the rational connection test for the government to just say, right, trust us, we're trying to um, alleviate discrimination. Then paragraph 50 is where the court says um, that it doesn't have to be the sole purpose, right? So program can have multiple purpose. What's important is for the relevant purpose, right, the one that intends to reduce inequality and discrimination to actually meet the criteria under the test, it's paragraph 50. Then you have a definition um, of amelioration, paragraphs 53 and following. Um, not particularly relevant for us to address because it's very intuitive. And um, you have another um, significant um, distinction, paragraph 55, right? Not all members of a group have to be disadvantaged. So. As we said, right, there was this um, problem in the case law of creating this comparator group, right, which was essentially removed. So there was lots of tedious work um, initially after the charter was passed in um, ensuring that um, in, in ensuring that you define the, the comparator group properly in assessing whether um, uh, the, the claimant or the plaintiff is being treated differently. That is essentially no longer relevant but the court still reiterates that not all members of the group that is claiming to be disadvantaged have to be disadvantaged. In other words, right, you might have rich people in that indigenous community, doesn't prevent the indigenous community from overall being economically disadvantaged. Again, very intuitive. That's paragraph 55 of the decision. And then the court applies um, the test, right, paragraphs, 
um, 56 and following, essentially what I said, right? Granting a license to a specific group that's exclusive and that's not granted to the white people in that case, well, of course, that is a distinction based upon an enumerated or analogous ground, in that case, race, right? Uh, people being indigenous or not. And the court says there's evidence that the group is disadvantaged and there's evidence that there's a rational connection between what the government wants to do and the way the government tries to do it. And so, as I said, giving people licenses so they can fish, sell the fish, make money, that's a sensible, rationally connected way for, um, for the group to be less economically disadvantaged, to remedy that historical disadvantage. And again, as I said, right, that removes the necessity for, um, for the, um, for, for the group, right, to have to, for the government, sorry, to have to prove that the program works. In that case, the government has to show that rational connection I've mentioned, doesn't have to show that, in fact, right, with some sort of proof as to how much money the indigenous group made, the indigenous group actually made money. In other words, the government actually achieved its purpose to remedy that historical disadvantage.